Hello everyone, it's December 20th, 2022. So this week we got a leaky Soyuz dock to the ISS. We're not quite sure what caused the leak or even what was leaked. Consensus is that it wasn't a urine dump, so we can at least identify the liquid as important. All right, let's analyze and speculate one last time per the year and lift off. Welcome to episode 390 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. And I'm Dennis. Ben's still off on his business trip. Long two-week thing before the end of the year, so they're really giving it to him. Uh, so it's just us again. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, there's, there's plenty to talk about, so no shortage of news at the end of the year. So um, what I wanted to mention, even though it's not spaceflight related, is of course, it's a big uh, fusion breakthrough, so to speak, uh, that uh, is you know like in all the news. Um, and it's interesting to see a scientific milestone like that actually make, you know, front page headlines. So thought I'd mention it. Um, yeah. Pretty cool. And, you know, and it's one of those big successes that still obviously is a qualified one. There's a lot of, you know, you like you have to take into account that this isn't quite, you know, this isn't, this does not mean that uh, fusion energy is right around the corner. So I guess we should talk about what that achievement is, even though I'm sure everyone like already knows. It's just, um, so this <laughs> happened at the National Ignition Facility, right? Um, yeah. at Lawrence Livermore. And, uh, they shot a little fuel pellet. Uh, fusion fuel pellet with a bunch of lasers and they were able to get more energy out of that than they put in which is not entirely true um, but there's more energy out of uh, that fusion ignition than the the energy that went into that system if you will or you know that closed system if you were to cut off what it took to power the lasers which was way more power right, right. Um, so there's still it's it's still like a 300% deficit or something like that I, I think uh, it took something like 300 megawatts of energy uh, to power those lasers and they got three megawatts back something around there but the amount that went in was actually i think 2.05 or somewhere around there right. um, I'm, i might be getting that wrong or megajoules is yeah i've got some numbers here but yeah basically what you're saying is that they uh they put in a little over two megajoules and got uh, a little over three out so that was an energy gain of about one and a half However, charging the laser consumed, quote, well above 400 megajoules. Yeah, so. <laughs> so exactly. But that's that's still really cool because, I mean, earlier this year, right? I, I remember uh, the, we were all talking, the three of us, because that, that's Q, I think, uh, that uh, out divided by energy in. There, there was some uh, uh, earlier this year news where I guess they were getting closer <laughs> to having a Q greater than one or equal to one, but um, they smashed it. <laughs> Good job. Yeah. So. And it happened through... Uh, this method, which is called inertial confinement, uh, mm. not through, not, you know, so this didn't occur in a tokamak. And recently there was, uh, just, you know, the past couple of weeks, there were two videos by, uh, Real Engineering, uh, which is a great YouTube channel. And they both, uh, are like are all about fusion. So, and apparently it has nothing to do with this latest big breakthrough. It just happened to, you know, fall within that same time. So, um, so it's kind of cool. Um, very prescient videos, uh, that are all about, you know, the latest advances in fusion, uh, so I would highly recommend checking those out. It's really interesting stuff, and it kind of gives you hope, much in the same way that, that the last big video that uh, he did on Spin Launch. This is kind of the same thing, but for Fusion, mm. and it's about a specific company. And he kind of went in thinking, you know, feeling a, a more skeptical about Fusion than he was positive about it. But now he's like, you know, actually, this might be going somewhere. <laughs> um, and, and, and of course, there's so many companies that are, I mean, private sure, companies sure. that are working towards this and they're working on you know quote-unquote commercial grade reactors i'm not sure how true that is because it seems like commercial like you know really but i mean those are the words that are being used in and there's quite a few of them out there which that right there tells me if people are willing to put money into something like this for you know commercial purposes they must be getting close because you don't do that unless 
you're close. You know what I mean? Like, um, so this is probably a bit further beyond. I mean, this is definitely well beyond like basic research type stuff. Yeah, I mean, like, I would hope these companies are more rather than trying to market an actual product, which we are not going to get in our <laughs> lifetime, maybe when we're really old. But like you said, that's still decades away. But it's still helpful if they're you know trying to figure out you know different techniques and methods and ways to uh, kind of push the entire field forward, um, especially when there's two main competing uh, approaches to uh, uh, nuclear fusion. All right, so in the news, a Soyuz spacecraft has a coolant leak, uh, MS-22. So that was the big news this week, and I'm sure we've all seen the video. It looked like it was snowing outside the station. Maybe it's appropriate for Christmas, but not not appropriate for a Soyuz. (laughs) Yeah. That is a good way to describe it. It looked like a snow globe kind of actually. Um, Not good. Uh, So what do we know so far about this? So basically, this was a Soyuz that had docked actually back in September. So this this has been on orbit for some months now. It seemed spontaneously just started venting what uh, at least ground control and mission specialists in Russia think is coolant. And there's no reason to doubt that. It seems that that's, you know, like all indications are pointing to a coolant leak. I don't know what else it really could be. Um, I suppose it could be some other things, but yeah, coolant. So why did that happen? Um, we're thinking it's probably it was probably struck by a bit of orbital debris or maybe a micrometeoroid. But uh, yeah, so this leak occurred on December 14th, and this happened during two of the Russian cosmonauts prepping for a spacewalk. Mm. Uh, so they were actually doing that. I think they might have even been in the airlock at the time. I think so. They started to depressurize it and everything, if I remember correctly. Yeah, and then lo and behold, uh, right around that time, uh, sensors. Um, on board the Soyuz uh, detected low pressure in the external radiator cooling loop. So that's why we think it's a coolant problem. Plus, the way that the coolant looks, um, according to some people, um, I couldn't really see it, uh, but apparently it it looked kind of flaky in that point to ammonia because that's what ammonia looks like when it vents out into space, apparently. So it has kind of like a, I guess, like a flaky, snowflakey kind of a look maybe. It's kind of beautiful when you just look at it because they have to overexpose the spacecraft uh, for you to be able to pick it out in the in the footage, because there's, yeah, I guess, an ISS camera that happened to be aimed that direction, or that they were able to aim that direction. But yeah, it is beautiful, if worrying and yeah. awful um, at the same time. <laughs> so as a result of that leak, uh, the spacewalk was obviously postponed. And at the moment, it is actually indefinitely postponed because uh, we, mm. they, you know, they don't know. Um, they have to assess this situation first. So yeah, like I said, the external radiator cooling loop—that's the suspected source. Um, and the leak stopped only when the coolant had all vented. So um, there was no way to stop the leak otherwise. So basically, there is no coolant left in the external radiator loop. Mm. Now, there's actually two loops, right? There's the external and then there's the internal. Mm. Uh, the internal is probably intact and fine, but the external is uh, what has you know, been completely depleted. Yeah, and so the cosmonauts obviously, at least for the time being, can't go out because uh, the ammonia, if that's what that was, is highly toxic if it's brought back in. And we've uh, talked about this before when they um, astronauts have done work on the cooling systems on board the station. Man, that stinks. I was looking forward to, uh, yeah, for the era, you know, European robotic arm going and grabbing the radiator and then the the airlock. So it's been it's been like over a decade, I think, since Rosvet's been sitting there with this equipment to be installed on Nauka because Nauka's ridiculous delays. And now it's going to be delayed even further, um, which is kind of uh, frustrating. Yeah. And, and this, this, this MS-22, is this is parked at 
uh, at Rosfed as well. So this is the one that's right across from Nauka. Spraying Nauka in the face with ammonia. Um. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but for right now, the temperature aboard the Soyuz is still normal. So that's good. Uh, the biggest concern apparently is the flight computers. So those can overheat. So those obviously are cooled, uh, at least initially, or the heat's carried away from them by the, I believe, the internal cooling loop. Uh, but then that needs to be fed to the external. And then it's, you know, from there radiated out into space. But that... It's not possible at the moment, but it's not too much of a problem at this moment because uh, the Soyuz is docked, the hatch is open, and so there's cool air that's actually circulating in there uh, from station. So not a big concern at the moment, and I don't think that overheating is going to be an issue so long as it's docked. But once it's not, I wonder how drastically that would change. Yeah, if they can't use those flight computers, uh, apparently they can do a manual reentry, so you wouldn't necessarily need them, but that is far from optimal and uh, the possible landing area would be much larger. So you're coming in manually, which yeah. sounds terrifying to me. Yeah, I yeah. don't know if that's been done recently or ever on a Soyuz. I can't remember. I feel like they had a lot of like, there's been a lot of off-nominal Soyuz incidents over the years, but not not super recently. But like, yeah, they, they've, like there was the South Korean astronaut, she got injured on re-entry because they screwed things up one time. There's been a number of ballistic re-entries. I don't know about manual ones since maybe like the 70s or the 60s, but like they've had recent problems on ascent, but I don't remember, you know, uh, them at least having to do this uh, kind of thing uh, in the last, you know, three or four years at least. That's scary because they've never had a medical incident where someone had to be, they had to evacuate the station or have somebody, you know, get brought back down real quickly. But uh, you you know the station's only getting older. There seem to be more and more problems creeping up uh, every month, seemingly. And so I really would want both of you know my light bolts uh, <laughs> working <laughs> in full <laughs> full form. But yeah. Um, but first, one other problem that just makes this even worse um, is that uh, the ISS is it's in a high beta angle part of its orbit. So you know this is when it, the station is pretty much the entire time you know being exposed to the sun. Um, yeah, it's just like visible at all points during the orbit. So that's that you know requires a lot of heat dissipation and the soyuz definitely is you know can't do that but like i said it's it's not too much of an issue now that it's docked or since it's docked yeah. but that does not help matters any yeah um, poor timing so the, the ms22 was not scheduled to return until march um, and when it does, uh, and who knows when that'll be now, or if it'll even happen, uh, the people on board would be Prokopiev um, and Petalin, who is the other cosmonaut, and both of them were going to do the spacewalk, and then also Rubio. So that's when they're scheduled to return, but they might return uh, as early as this month if the overheating issue is you know, expected to get worse. Although, it seems to me that they might not because you know they just might not be able to use that spacecraft at all. But um, what they're planning on doing now, the next move is to use Canadarm2, and they're going to do a much more detailed inspection to see exactly what caused the leak. Because if it turns out that it's a micrometeoroid or some space debris, then that means the other components could have been damaged, uh, stuff that they can't see, uh, because you know that little rock or whatever might have gone much deeper. Ah. But yeah, they're going to have to assess that. So pending that, uh, one possibility is that MS-23, the next Soyuz uh, to be launched, might need to be flown up autonomously, and then that will bring back the MS-22 crew. Um, however, there's a couple of things to talk about, and um, I got a lot of this from... Uh, one particular source, uh, so the former the the former head of spaceflight safety, uh, Tommaso Zagoba, I'm not sure how to say his name, 
kind of had some things to say, um, and it seems that he's skeptical of that particular option. Uh, oh. So first off, he says that uh, he thinks that the Soyuz is actually damaged beyond repair, so you know, you're not going to be using MS-22 at all, so I guess they would just have to deal with the thing. Oh. And basically, it's, he says that just because if it's lost all of its coolant, then it's just not viable, which which seems reasonable to me. Like, it seems kind of important that you have that external cooling loop, right? Yeah, like, they're, they're going to... How do you remove heat? Yeah, they're going to bake in some margin, safety margin, into everything, but not like, here's an entire loop that you don't... Here's an entire system <laughs> that you don't need, right? That yeah. seems like a bit much. Right. Yeah, there's there's no backup and there's no partial loss of coolant. This is just... It's just all gone. I guess it would all come down to the amount of time it takes to get from orbit to the ground, right? So all that time that you're spending on orbit but detached from station, uh, you know, the temperature starts to go up inside. Mm -hmm. um, that sounds scary and dangerous. That sounds terrifying. But yeah, his biggest concern as well is the crew safety. So basically, if station needs to be evacuated, what do you do? Right mm -hmm. now, there's not many options. So um, let's hope that nothing goes catastrophically wrong and they need to bring everyone back because that's really – there's just no way to do that, or at least it, it would be highly risky because they, I guess, they would have to attempt to come back on that Soyuz. I don't even know what, how that would work. I have no idea what the procedure is like right now. I have to do some Hollywood stuff, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, right now, Crew Dragon is the only thing that could bring people back, but uh, that can't accommodate everyone. So, so right now, there are seven people on board station, and you, you can fit seven people in a Crew Dragon. I don't know if there's even that many seats, however, first of all, but also. Uh, the thing that uh, Tomaso Stagoba brought up is that uh, the flight suits would not work because uh, they wouldn't fit everyone, which was a bit weird to me. I mean, that's true because the SpaceX flight suits are kind of like custom made, but also I don't think that they have seven suits on orbit, right? Or am I wrong there? Because it's just the people who – it's just those who came up on it, right? Like you wouldn't have suits for extra people, I don't think. I wouldn't think but, so either. Uh, that, that was – that was his concern is that the flight suits wouldn't fit the other cosmonauts um, and I guess the one American too. I mean like in, in, in an absolutely catastrophic scenario, that's why I was referencing like you'd have to go Hollywood and I I don't know. You just – you have to make the best calls that you can and if that means having a very risky return, that's better than staying on a station if you knew that there's no chance of surviving on the station, you know? And so if that means that – I mean – in principle, if you could not interface with Dragon's life support, could you survive uh, re-entry potentially? Yeah. Chris in the chat is, is pointing out that flight suits are actually optional for Dragon unless they depress, which if things go nominally, then there's no reason why you would do that. Uh, so I, I suppose you don't need it. Um, and I guess in a like in a huge emergency, you would just say, screw it. We don't – you know, like it's, yeah. you know, it's better to take your chances just coming back without a flight suit. Sure. Um, that's true. But I, w I would like to know is – like are there seats? I don't think that there are because they wouldn't just be in there, right? I believe they, they removed those seats if they don't need them. Um, are there seven seats available for all the crew I'm pretty aboard? sure there aren't seven seats. That would seem like a bit much, <laughs> uh, right? That, that was the whole – the whole thing was it was it was rated for seven if they didn't, I guess, have the amount of, I guess, cargo or equipment inside. And mm -hmm. so that's, I think, if I remember correctly, why they scaled it down to just four because maybe a bare-bones dragon could – have seven humans in it, but a operational working dragon really just fits four. But when we say fit, we mean it's designed to fit and uh, is is yeah. uh, rated to fit four people. But if if yeah. if literally you climb in there, I don't know, hold on to the you know, just wedge yourself in a corner so that you're uh, yeah, you can go full story Musgrave. 
Yeah, go yeah. full story Musgrave. <laughs> I'm just going to stand up and hold on to something. Yeah. Which he did twice. I don't know if you knew that. Oh, did I he? found out. Yeah. Oh, I think maybe you told us that. I do remember the first time. So the second time, was that coming back as well? I mean, obviously it had to have been. I th- I knew about his yeah, his final flight he did, and I thought that was just like him being wild on this, that final one. But like he, he also evidently did it on STS-6. And tried to, you know, claim it was for uh, medical experiments because this was early, early shuttle. And he's like, yeah, you know, I thought it was a good <laughs> idea to stand up on reentry. And so, I mean, there's there's mm-hmm. dialogue of him and the other astronauts saying that he did that. So, evidently, he's done it. At least, we should, knowing him, we should say at least twice. Yeah. <laughs> and so, before we leave, just a quick uh, uh, TCM. Uh, thanks to Colin in the chat for pointing out that there's – while there is reporting that the coolant is ammonia – uh, some people on the uh, NASA spaceflight uh, forums, in particular, I can see uh, uh, Twark Maine uh, writing and pointing to some uh, documents related to Russian designs uh, of their spacecraft using silicone oil in the external loop, for example, on Mir, and water slash glycol for the internal loop. Uh, and some mm. uh, other documentation there. So, uh, with the context being ammonia would evaporate harmlessly, as it has in previous ISS ammonia leak incidents, whereas something like silicone oil would not. And so that's not a hard and fast, that's what's happening here. It's just that uh, maybe take the ammonia reporting with uh, not a hefty grain of salt, but, you know, just a spoonful. And we'll, you know, see as things yeah. shake out. I imagine there's this is going to be analyzed uh, to death, which is, you know, fun for us. I <laughs> can't wait to come back to this, as I'm sure we will, especially with Ben. Ben's going to let it rip. <laughs> well, I, I, I got something uh, something to throw at you, see what you think. If this was just a micrometeoroid strike, what are the odds of that happening exactly when they're preparing for a spacewalk? I mean, I don't know, but <laughs> why is that? I don't know. I mean, it seems um, like that that that's fairly coincidental. And um, a, a, a mutual on Twitter I, I was talking to about that it, also pointed out that on a spacewalk, they also make sure to stay away from any known clouds of debris, which makes sense. Uh, if you're going to have meat bags outside doing an EVA, you don't want you want to know that you're going to be as safe as you could be. So I don't know. I mean, do you think so? You think it's just a coincidence? I mean, it could be, but I just I mean, I assume so. I mean, what else could that be? I mean, like, what's your uh, possible conspiracy theory? Well, you know, Soyuz is connected to the station, the Russian orbital segment. The Russian orbital segment's doing all this EVA prep stuff and that might that interfacing you know something about preparing dropping the pressure in poisk i guess or whatever somehow propagates to the soyuz whether it's i mean i don't i don't know all the details but i feel like it, it just i don't know thinking scientifically if, if, if the correlations aren't causation but a lot of mm-hmm. times things are correlated because they are caused <laughs> and so one causes the other. Sure. You know, that does work sometimes. So I'm not saying that's what happened, but I don't know. Like my first thought was like, oh, crap, they were preparing for the spacewalk. And at some point, you know, adjusting the Russian orbital segment systems uh, didn't the, – the Soyuz MS-22 did not like being interfaced with what the Russian orbital segment was doing and it ended up blowing a leak. I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm not very good at this, uh, explaining it, but just it seems it doesn't seem unreasonable to me that that could be something that happened. But we'll probably I'll probably be proven wrong, and they'll like have like a little like picture with the uh, when they if they look at it with Canadarm too, and they'll see the little hole from the uh, micrometeoroid debris, but or impact. But 
that was the first thing I thought of when I when I heard that it was happening during the spacewalk. That seems like too much of a coincidence. I suppose. I, I don't know. It didn't seem like much of one to me, but because one, they're always doing something on station. It's not like you're not. I mean, like if the Russians were doing something else, you might say that too, right? It's true. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, if they were, I don't know what they do on a daily basis as far as it, that's, you know, not just like, yeah, you're right. I, I mean, this is like a bigger thing. Yeah, spacewalk space is more dramatic, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but that is a fair point that if you're looking for patterns, you could always, you could always find it. I just think that a, a spacewalk is a big enough pattern since they do, what, a dozen or so a year? You know, like they're not super common, even as, as high a clip as they've been doing <laughs> recently. And my first thought when I heard about the leak was it it sprung a leak or you know yeah like you like something that was that wasn't uh, a natural phenomenon that just seemed more likely to me because you usually don't see dramatic as dramatic a result of a hit as this I mean but the station is hit all the time by little bits of debris like that that does happen a lot mm-hmm. um, this time it caused a, a full on leak so maybe it's just it just hit the wrong spot you know um, mm-hmm. but it's certainly not rare for the station or a spacecraft to take a hit yeah. I think it's yeah, it's very consistent with it, and the fact that that's what you know is being reported that probably is what happened. But I don't know. I just I wanted to throw that out there because it might sound silly, but I don't know. <laughs> it just could be. It's just kind of uh, the timing is, is something else. But I, I also don't know, you know, exactly how could preparing for a spacewalk influence an external cooling loop on a docked Soyuz. I don't know. And so that's why I kind of yeah. have to, you know, there's a big uh, hand waving that's happening between the cause and the effect in this scenario. But still wanted to throw that out there. Wouldn't be the first thing I'm wrong about on the show. <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> now that you're saying it, now you got me kind of half waking. It's like, yeah, you could be right. It's, I mean, it, it is, it's Russia. And we just talked about last week how they do, you know, they tend to twist facts a little bit, or at least mm. they used to during the or during the Soviet era. I feel I feel like that's always going on. <laughs> no, I, I mean, yeah, blaming uh, blaming a hole in a Soyuz on uh, American astronaut sabotage. Of course, that was you know, <laughs> that, that was that was yeah. a loudmouth previous um, director of Roscosmos. Yeah, that's true. But, so uh, hopefully they're not. So yeah, so so the another another grain of salt for the reporting about. Uh, the, the micrometeoroid debris until they show evidence um, of it. I guess mm-hmm. maybe we take that with another spoon of salt. So this week, let's just do two short and sweets again. Dennis, what is the first? Lockheed Martin performs habitat burst test. As part of NASA's Next Step program, a public-private partnership exploring various deep space capabilities, Lockheed Martin recently tested an inflatable habitat design outside their Colorado facility. The burst test increased the structure's pressure until it finally failed at 285 psi, over six times its maximum operating pressure. Outfitted with hundreds of sensors and monitored with high-speed cameras, the goal was to prove out their particular design, which the company sees as just the beginning of a development path for an operational inflatable habitat on orbit. Next up, Jutue-2 fails to reach orbit. Chinese launch company Landspace failed to reach orbit with its Jutue-2 rocket. This launch was hoped to be the first methane-fueled launch vehicle to reach orbit. However, a problem with the rocket's second stage resulted in the mission's failure. Landspace is currently working on a second flight model of Jutue-2, but this failure makes unclear the timeline for its launch. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. 
questions, comments, and correction burns. We got some real corrections, uh, one from this past week, one from the week before that because we forgot about it. But what is the first one? <laughs> right. They're piling up. So the first one comes from Chris H. in the chat who was pointing out some good context. Uh, so this is when we were talking about the uh, sustaining lunar development, uh, basically HLS round two. And when I was mentioning the new players in the uh, nas- on the national team, I included Honeybee, which Chris uh, highlighted was bought by Blue Origin earlier this year, which makes sense. Blue Origin being the head of uh, the national team that Honeybee, who they acquired, is now going to be helping them with their HLS lander. So uh, just a good bit of uh, adding a little more to it. And so thank you, Chris, for pointing that out because I had no idea. It's tough to keep track sometimes of these yeah. acquisitions. <laughs> And then after that, then the next correction has to do with the episode two weeks ago where we had mentioned to some – well, we had discussed the differences between uh, what a pyrophoric uh, reaction is and a hypergolic one. And we discussed it on the show and then I guess I left a lot of it out in the editing because we did arrive at the right conclusion. But I guess some people listening to the episode, they had heard it and said, oh, you guys got that wrong, which is I guess true from what you heard. It's just that we mm. did correct ourselves, but I took that out by accident. So I guess I'm putting it back in. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the difference between a pyrophoric and a hypergolic reaction, right? So uh, yeah, we were talking about um, – what was the context? What were we talking about specifically? T-teb. I think we were talking about T-teb. Yeah. So we were talking about T-teb. I guess we should just go through the definitions, right? I guess that's what the real uh, aim of this correction is, right? So so just to define these two words, pyrophoric is any kind of a reaction where the substance reacts spontaneously with air or specifically with oxygen. That's a pyrophoric reaction. And then a hypergolic is when you have two substances that spontaneously react with each each other. That's how I think of it. And I guess we didn't make that very clear in the episode because I took all that out because we kind of rambled for a good 15 minutes about the differences between the two. <laughs> um, and uh, I do, and I wanted to keep the show somewhat uh, coherent. That's fair. We got there eventually. It just took a little bit of time. Yeah. That correction was brought to us uh, by Uncle Willie and Chubby. So thank you for that. Mm. So let's do this week in spaceflight history. We have five winners. Uh, we have Cy Kyle, Uncle Willie, the Greek, Deskin Miller, and Leon Running Man. So congratulations. And they all got bonus points, right? Yep. Full marks. Um, and the clue was just calm down. So yeah, why should we calm down on this date in spaceflight history? <laughs> yeah. So, so, so Jim Lovell needed to calm down on December 24th, 1968, and it was when the Earthrise photograph was taken by the Apollo 8 crew, uh, and specifically Bill Anders. I guess, you know, coming up for the holidays. Um, this was originally meant to be a, uh, a medium Earth orbit uh, command module and lunar module flight. But the lunar module, the LEM, was uh, far behind on its development and production because it kind of came in a little late in the game. And so they had some different choices to make of how they you know, could proceed with the development and getting to the moon. And they thought this kind of interesting idea would be to, well, we, have, we can get a Saturn V and we can get a command service module ready. And we've got crews that are, you know, training for taking, you know, a CSM and a LEM to the moon. So maybe we just put a dummy LEM in there and we still have them go to the moon anyway. And so that's kind of the genesis of how the Apollo 8 mission was, uh, it kind of actually jumped ahead of uh, what then became Apollo 9 and was the first mission to get people to the moon. And so uh, there's a lot of firsts, but um, I guess to talk about the crew real quick, uh, the commander was Frank Borman. Uh, who had previously flown on Gemini 7. 
Uh, this was his final flight. And the command module pilot was uh, Jim Lovell, who had flown with Frank Borman on Gemini 7, uh, which I've heard the, uh, the the head of Paragon, which does uh, a lot of life support stuff for space missions. They're, they're headquartered in town. And uh, he had referred to Gemini 7 as the most uh, incredible endurance feat that any astron- uh, astronauts had ever really done before. Because they were, they were in that tiny little Gemini capsule for, I think, 13 days or something. Like, it was intense. Um, but uh, they, they managed to pull it out. And so Jim Lovell, uh, who also flew on Gemini 12, so he was the most experienced uh, of the three in terms of number of flights that he had been on, um, was the command module pilot. And the reason being is that uh, Michael Collins was originally uh, slated for this uh, position, but he had a, uh, an issue with a bone spur that had to be resolved. And so uh, Jim took his place because he had already worked with uh, Frank Borman on Gemini 7. And so they kind of knew each other, worked well, and he was a good steady hand to have take over uh, that role. Do you know? Do you happen to know where the bone spur was? I'm kind of surprised. I mean, I realize they have to be in top condition, but you know, I'm kind of surprised that that would disqualify you. No. And I, I did a half-hearted search. Oh, it was in his neck. Oh, in his neck? Yeah. I can see how that might be more serious, I suppose. Mm. Okay. And then rounding out the crew was the uh, the only rookie, and this would be his only flight, but he was the star of this event, at least. And this was uh, the lunar module pilot, Bill Anders, who on the one hand was a little disappointed to be the lunar module pilot on a mission that did not have a lunar module. But uh, it still worked out well. He kind of had taken the role as the, uh, I mean, among other things, but he was uh, uh, the the principal photographer you could think of um, for this mission. And uh, yeah, first time humans were going out beyond uh, low Earth orbit. And so the Saturn V launch was nominal. The translunar injection went flawlessly. Uh, Michael Collins was the Capcom on this mission, uh, as it happens. And so he, he made the call to, you know, go for this uh, first TLI. And um, on the tr- – I mean, there was just a bunch of firsts. You know, this is the first time humans uh, were able to see the entire disk of the Earth on their outbound trajectory. It was the first time they passed through the Van Allen belts. And then, of course, once they got to the moon, there was, uh, you know, obviously a whole plethora of new firsts. But um, if the event was Apollo 8, you know, I could spend, you know – you could write a whole book, I'm sure, on just what the, uh, <laughs> you know, the outbound trip and the, the rest of the mission was. But um, I, I want to say that it wasn't the easiest, uh, but it was fine. You know, they made it in one piece. They had some issues. Um, there was still a lot of uh, – uh, there's kind of like a, a cloud of uh, debris and, uh, you know, oil and gunk kind of getting on the windows. And so it wasn't the clearest trip. They actually hadn't seen the moon for a while or until they had actually reached the moon. Um, and uh, – Chris, a.k.a. Stig Garfield, uh, had a good guess. Uh, he got the right mission. It was Apollo 8, but he was referencing as his guess, uh, I guess for Just Calm Down, how uh, Frank Borman got terribly, terribly ill. And so uh, he thought it was just a quick stomach flu, but you know, it was probably just space adaptation sickness. And so he was, uh, he was sick at both ends, uh, I'll say. And so it was a pretty tough uh, uh, trip there uh, towards the moon, but, you know, they're, they're professionals, they're you know, they got they got through it just fine. And eventually, you know, he adapted and was A-OK. And so uh, that's that's one way, I guess, you could calm down. But but yeah. So eventually they get to the moon. Uh, and after a second mid-course correction uh, uh, closer to the to the moon, they were now uh, going to pass 115 kilometers or 72 miles from the lunar surface. And so then they prepared for uh, LOI, Lunar Orbit Injection 1, the LOI 1 burn. And this, of course, would have to be on the far side of the moon and how scary that kind of thing is. Yeah. And uh, it was 
they were at a radio contact and uh, they're getting ready to do it. And it was only at two minutes before the burn that they actually got to see the moon itself. So it was a combination of the the attitude of the spacecraft as well as the dark side of the moon uh, facing them that they had to actually be it was yeah it wasn't until they were already on the far side of the moon that they got to see the gray lunar surface for the first time um which is kind of crazy to think about but I guess you know that's just the way it shook out yeah, so they did the burn. It was four minutes and seven seconds. Uh, it was nominal. Uh, I, I've read that they uh, referred to it as the lo- longest four minutes of their lives, uh, which I guess makes sense. And then they were just doing a lot of uh, – they did some reconnoitering on their uh, their kind of first orbit and really the remaining ones. And so this is the first time humans, right, are seeing the moon up close. And so they're just straight up calling out, you know, descriptions of, you know, I'm seeing a lot of craters, they're they're more rounded, uh, it looks kind of like plaster of Paris, the surface, um, the contrast isn't as great as what you see from Earth uh, when you're looking at the moon, uh, when you're up close, and so on. And so, anyway, they're, you know, all the while they're doing this, they are now in lunar orbit, so they're going to make uh, ultimately 10 uh, orbits around the moon uh, over, I believe, a 20-ish hour period, or, or Sorry, a 20-ish hour period of time, not that the orbit was 20 hours uh, uh, period. On their second pass, they did an 11-second uh, LOI-2 burn that circularized them at uh, about 70 miles. And during their third pass, uh, Frank Borman, the commander, read a prayer. Um, this wasn't reading from uh, Genesis, which was a kind of a famous thing. They did that at a later pass than that. But the event um, for December 24th, uh, 1968, was during the fourth pass, and it was when the Earthrise photo was taken. And so um, this is just so charmingly fun to listen to the crew uh, talk about this and see what was going on. And there actually was a little bit of um, almost controversy as to who actually took the picture. And it took a, um, hmm. a uh, uh, an author, Andrew Chaikin, um, and, and we'll have his, uh, his post in the Smithsonian uh, website uh, where he details his investigation starting in the, you know, what he figured out in the 80s, but then also spanning, you know, into the 2010s of, you know, who had taken uh, all of the photos that are involved. But it's just really, really a lot of fun to listen to this. And um, it all basically started three days, three hours, and uh, 42 minutes into the mission. So they're kind of just business as usual, right? Like I said, they're kind of just investigating lunar surface and detailing it as much as possible. And uh, uh, Bill Anders uh, starts off by talking just, again, business as usual. Uh, The impact crater was just prior to subsolar point on the south side and the floor of it didn't really get to – there's one dark hole and I couldn't get a quick enough look at it to see if it might be anything volcanic, right? They're just kind of reporting things like that. And then like some 10 seconds later – uh, Anders goes and says, you know, oh my God, look at that picture over there. Here's the earth coming up. Wow, is that pretty. And so I guess, yeah, we can all listen to the clip now, maybe. Oh my God, look at that picture over there. There's the earth coming up. Wow, is that pretty. Hey, don't take that. It's not scheduled. <laughs> you got a color film, Jim? So I wanted to only keep that till level saying like, oh man, that's great. Because he's got such a distinctive voice compared to Anders and Borman. And so you just hear him cut through just like, oh man, that's great. That, 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 that's such a fun clip. Like, I mean, I mean, just imagine seeing that. You, you could hear in Anders' voice, you know, how excited. Oh my God, look at that picture over there. And what's 
interesting too about this uh, and about this, you know, this Andrew Chaikin, this author who did a little investigating. If you look at NASA's transcript, they say that Borman is the one saying, "Oh my God, look at that picture over there," and Anders replies with, "You know, hey, don't take that; it's not scheduled." And then there's a little bit of laughter because Anders mm-hmm. had previously stopped Borman from. Uh, you know, Borman had wanted to take some picture earlier in the mission, and Anders was like, "No, man, we've got you know, we've got our schedule. We've got to do X, Y, and Z. You know, we can't be you know, I guess wasting time on photos like that." I mean, he didn't quite you know say it like that, and so you know that's why it could have made sense that that was uh, Anders saying that second line, but in reality, uh, it was Anders who saw the Earth rise for the first time. And then Borman was poking fun at him by saying, you know, hey, don't take that. It's not scheduled. And so um, that's kind of uh, why they, you know, they chuckled about it. And so that that the actual NASA transcript is, is wrong about that, interestingly enough. An interesting little bit uh, that, you know, happens there too is that during that clip, after the, hey, don't take that, it's not scheduled joke, uh, that's when Anders took the first shot which was a black and white shot of uh, the the Earth coming around the limb of the moon. And uh, from their perspective, even if you see it, you know, with the lunar surface kind of horizontal and the moon, you know, above it, in reality, the orientation was that it was more like the, the limb was going up and down with the moon on the right and the Earth rising to the left. Yeah, so that's when the first black and white picture, the first of these kind of three uh, Earthrise pictures were taken, although there's the one that's kind of the, the most famous of them. And so that's why after, you know, he, he then says, you know, hand me that roll of color quick, will you? So because they wanted to get a color shot of it. Uh, a short time after this, they're still talking and they're excited and everything. But then they go and say the following. And here's where the clue comes in. Hey, I got it right here. Let me get up this a lot clearer. Still, I got a phrase that's very clear right here. Got it? Yep. Here. Wait, 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 I mean, you know, they're just all so excited about this. And so he's like, come on, take the picture, take the picture, give it to me. I, I, I could do it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And so, and, and that call out at the very end, 250 at F11, that was just saying the, uh, the exposure time, which was one two fiftieth of a second. And then a focal ratio was, uh, F11. And so that's telling you, uh, you know, that little bit of photography. Yeah. Uh, so I had mentioned that uh, the, the official NASA transcript got a little off and that was uh, tracked down. And one of the ways that they were able to really clinch, um, you know, who had said who and who had taken uh, the photographs, because uh, that second clip uh, included, you know, the second and third ones, which were color photos taken, uh, very famous uh, ones of the you know, of Earthrise, including the the one that's called, you know, the Earthrise photo. Uh, Andrew Chaikin had tracked down uh, Ernie Wright. Um, who was at Goddard Space Flight Center uh, working? Uh, he's, he's of um, he's with the Scientific Visualization Studio, and he'd been making these computer animations at Goddard based on LRO data. And in 2012, was able to uh, reconstruct Apollo 8's path over the moon. So basically, just by taking uh, the photo and kind of reverse engineering the position and orientation of it, and he was able to get you know basically able to match. 
um, the uh, Earthrise picture, like spot on. And it was to the point where they knew he was able to figure out essentially the attitude of the CSM. I mean, I guess you could have also picked it out uh, from NASA, you know, maybe documents. I'm sure their telemetry, you know, would be able to tell you this. But ultimately, the CSM was pointed nadir. So nose was pointed towards the moon. Which means if the Earth's rising over the limb of the moon, then only really one of the windows on the CSM was really was going to be able to see the Earth at a, at a given time. And indeed, it was Bill Anders who saw that one. And so the first black and white photo uh, credit was given to Frank Borman for decades. Uh, but now, you know, he, you know, conceded. Not really much of a conceded. He was just, you know, kind of misremembered. It was very chaotic, as you can imagine at the time. Uh, but now everyone's kind of confirmed that it was, you know, Bill Anders who had taken all these uh, Earthrise photos. And so very cool. And yeah. And, and also uh, uh, very nice to know that all three of these uh, Apollo astronauts are with us today. Uh, December 2022. That's great. <laughs> it makes me happy. So they had an uneventful return home. Um, I mean, I guess you could also you could make a whole again episode on this, but uh, not really the uh, event. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> but it did include two things I wanted to mention that are kind of related to uh, or you know topical in some way. One is that uh, it did an atmospheric skip on return. Right. It's coming back roaring hot from the moon. This is the first time uh, humans are returning at that kind of speed, and so uh, they did an atmospheric skip on the atmosphere. It wasn't as pronounced as Orion's recent one was, uh, but it was still uh, an atmospheric skip nonetheless. And yeah, and they also landed nose down since we were talking about that a few episodes ago with uh, yeah. Ben. And so it was nose down until the bags inflated and got it upright. So that's the event that I was thinking of, but I couldn't name. And uh, luckily, we're covering it this week. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And uh, yeah, so they, you know, it landed, and the the I guess the. Uh, the, the film was taken by uh, NASA technicians who wanted to develop it as quickly as possible. And so they actually drove four hours from uh, Houston to Corpus Christi, Texas, to r r Photo Studio and Color Labs. And the owner processed it, uh, printed out some glossy 8x10s, uh, and returned those in the negatives to NASA. And there you go. That was uh, the origin of this photo, which has a lot of fun... Uh, transcripts uh, along with it. And so that's your uh, event for this week in spaceflight history. Cool. I like any event that has some audio included, even though I have to put it in in editing, which is a, sm <laughs> a, a small pain. I do like getting to listen to astronauts, especially when they're not paying particular attention to the fact that they're being recorded. You know, mm. uh, that's always the most interesting stuff. I mean, like, obviously they knew that they were being recorded, but they weren't really thinking about that. And so you just get to hear them kind of like being themselves. Yeah, you, you can't, yeah, you can't be on your best behavior for, you know, for days. You know, you, you're going to, right. <laughs> you're going to act like a human <laughs> eventually. Yep. Well, we're going to be taking off the next few weeks for the holidays. And so a few weeks from now is the 10th to the 16th of January. David, do you have a clue for us? Uh, yes, I do. So the clue is for next week in 2009. I think Ben will be covering this one. I'm not sure. But the clue is Tacoma Narrows at Mach 25. Okay. Mm. Tacoma Narrows at Mach 25. What could that possibly mean? That is awfully fast. Well, so if you think you know what that uh, clue is referencing uh, in 2009, uh, you can shoot us an email or tweet at us with the hashtag ThisWeekSF. And good luck. Good luck. Moving right along to the upcoming spaceflight events, five of those, most of them watches. What's the first, Dennis? Well, the first up, we have one that's been updated and it's been uh, delayed a bit, but uh, on December 21st, Wednesday, 
hopefully, <laughs> Ariane Spass's Vega C will take the Pleiades Neo 5 and 6 uh, high resolution Earth observation satellites uh, to orbit, uh, to sun synchronous in particular. And so, this will be the last two in this constellation that's uh, built and operated by Airbus. And uh, being a Vega C launch, this is going to be flying out of Crew French Guiana, where they're targeting an instantaneous window again December 21st at 0147 UTC. And then after that, on the same day, we have the coverage of U.S. Spacewalk 83. So obviously, that'll be on NASA TV. Uh, the coverage begins at 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, the spacewalk is scheduled to begin at approximately 7.45. So this is the rollout of the IROSA Solar Array on the Port 4 Trust. Continuing with that, that'll be Rubio and Casada. Yeah, that'll be about a seven-hour spacewalk. And so next up, we have an, our first of several Falcon 9 launches upcoming, and this one would be uh, Starlink Group 5-1. So unless I uh, uh, missed it going out of order, it looks like this will be a new shell or whatever. Pretty cool. And so, as always, this is a Falcon 9 Block 5, taking a batch of uh, Starlink consulate, uh, satellites up there to orbit. And um, this launch, again, uh, December 28th uh, at 1000 UTC flying out of the Cape. After that, on the 28th slash 29th is the Falcon 9, and that is launching the Eros C3 satellite. So this is a uh, Israeli Earth observation satellite. So the launch time for that would be at 6.58 uh, UTC, launching from Vandenberg uh, from Complex 4E, or I guess Slick 4E, if you can call it that. Uh, so check that one out if you're doing nothing else uh, later on this month. And then next year, on January 2nd, 2023, uh, we've got targeted a uh, Falcon 9 taking Transporter 6. So nice big old ride share to Sun Synchronous. And so, um, again, this is January 2nd uh, with a, a, a 1455 UTC launch from Slick 40. And it'll be taking a whole bunch of stuff uh, that, you know, can't even go through. But, you know, a whole, uh, whole bunch of rockets or a whole bunch of spacecraft taking over a bit. And so that those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right. And so with that, let's deal with the show. We would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Chris, a.k.a. Stig Garfield, Colin, Deathkit, Mr. Cesium, The Greek, Jonesy, Ryan R., Emery, Azakar, and Dave M. for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. And you can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it, and we'll see you all in a couple of weeks. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody, and Happy New Year.